Well, if you were here this morning, you truly experienced a move of God. You heard the Word of God. Well, didn't we have wonderful worship? That praise team took us right into the presence of the Lord. And then <laughs> Brother Randy, you know, do you tore it up. Straight up tore it up. And, and I, I say that, um, yes, to compliment the, his faithfulness to the things of God, but at the same time, what a timely word, a truly prophetic word. Amen, church? We, we need to take heed to that, and we give honor to that. We, we give honor to him and, and the Lord using him, especially in this new vein that God has got him in. We give him honor. Amen? We're blessed. We're blessed, church. I want to just I want to just read a simple verse to you. You can remain seated. Uh, just a very short, simple verse. It's found in Matthew chapter eleven, verse eleven. And I want to speak to you tonight on the whole idea of keeping hope alive. Keeping hope alive. I want this to be an encouraging word to you. Amen. Anybody need any encouragement? Um, I want it to be an encouraging word. And 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 coming on the heels. Coming on that prophetic warning that Pastor Randy gave us today about taking the things of God seriously and recognizing the times in which we live, you need encouragement. Uh, because, you know, suffering in many, many, many different forms is on its way um, around the world. As he eloquently said today, around the world there are Christians that are literally dying uh, for their faith. You know, and that seems so foreign to us. That, that just seems so radical, so out there in left field. But yes, here we are in 2018 and around the world. People all over are dying for the cause of Christ, for their faith in Christ. That happens, church. It's time to get our heads out of the sand and acknowledge the fact. And, and I'm just going to be straight up honest with you. There's people in this country, given the opportunity, if they could pull it off, they absolutely would do the same. They would. They would. And they're not there yet. They don't have that freedom to do, do that yet. But they are there in the sense of persecution in, sense, in, in terms of just making fun of us and ridiculing us and lamblasting us in, in, in the media and just putting us down and belittling us. That in and of itself is a form, obviously, of persecution. And it's going to escalate. Uh, but at the same time, we have to be encouraged. And this verse that I'm going to read to you, it, it's going to seem odd. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's going to seem kind of weird and odd, but I think you'll catch on as we go along the, the, what the Lord has kind of laid on my heart about this. And, and this is what it says, speaking about John the Baptist. It says, I assure you that among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Let's, let's pray tonight. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I just want to, from the bottom of my heart, I want to preach a message that's going to encourage your people. God, I'm not trying to hype things up. But Lord, it is our job, Lord. There's a time to encourage, God. There's a time to build up in the faith, and I want to do that. Truly, God, we are in a day and time when just serving you, uh, it just puts a mark on our lives for persecution. Those that are, as Pastor Randy said, those that are truly blood-bought saints of God, they're, they're truly saved, the true blood-bought saints of God. Persecution is coming. And it's already here in many different forms. But Lord, we're not to lose heart. Lord, we are to be encouraged because there is a life to come that, that far exceeds. Eye has not seen and ear has not heard those things that you have stored for us, God. And Lord, we just pray that you would minister to this word tonight. God, bless your people. And may they be encouraged in the name of Jesus, we pray. And all those that agree, say amen. And it's simply this, I want you to keep your hope alive. And I don't know about you, but if the Lord Jesus had ever come and said about me what he had said about John the Baptist, I do not know of a greater compliment that has ever been pay, uh, paid to anyone in the history of the world. And I mean that. For the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one and only God of the universe, to sit there and say about John the Baptist in a complimentary fashion that there has never been born among women a man such as John the Baptist, does it get any better or higher than that? I ask you. And the context, we're going to talk about that for a little bit. The context of Jesus 
him making that statement is important because you need to know right out of the gate that John the Baptist actually did not hear. He did not audibly hear Jesus pay that compliment to him. John the Baptist, on this earth anyway, never knew that Jesus had paid him such a compliment. And we're going to talk about this for just a second. You see, John the Baptist was that, that prophesied, according to the book of Isaiah, he was that prophesied, and I'm quoting, preparer of the way. He was the foretold preparer of the coming Messiah. He was of himself a miracle birth in that, that he came to Zacharias, the, the priest, and Elizabeth in their old age. They conceived him. So that in and of itself was almost miraculous. And not only that, if you know anything about John the Baptist, he was, I, I think, I could be wrong, but I believe in my studies he was the third cousin of Jesus Christ. And it was John who actually, what an honor, what a privilege. It was John who actually had the honor and the privilege of introducing the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What an honor to get up and introduce the fulfillment of prophecy. What an honor that John the Baptist had. What an honor and a privilege. What a life that he lived. It was a humbling moment. It was an amazing moment. Many of you, if you've ever read the scripture, you know the stories. Now, I want you to take that moment of, of, of him introducing the ministry of Jesus and skip ahead approximately 16 months in the scriptural timeline of events. And at this point, at this point of the scripture I just read to you, 16 months later, John is now in prison. He is in prison because of his preaching. And let me just stop and say to everyone here and maybe those watching online, if you are a preacher, if you are a teacher of the Word of God, if you are a proponent of the things of God, people have you marked. They're coming for you. They're coming after you. And there are some that like they did John the Baptist, they would love to throw us into prison for our preaching. They would absolutely do that today. And all because John the Baptist came and he told Herod, it is not right for you to marry your brother's wife and to live in adultery. He was calling him out over his adultery. And because of this, because of Herod being embarrassed at being called out, and because of the woman that he was planning on mar marrying his brother's wife, they were all upset, they were all embarrassed, and because of them, they threw him into prison. And from that moment on, this woman that Herod planned on marrying, she was plotting against him. Now, I want, you, I, want, I want to paint a little bit of a picture for just a moment. The Bible points out, you can study it for yourself, the Bible points out that, that this woman come along, and in the midst of a party, she got Herod drunk. So let me just stop and say... When you get drunk, you make some stupid decisions. You're about to see what I'm talking about. So some stupid decisions were about to be made. And she comes along and she intentionally gets him drunk knowing that his inhibitions would be lowered. And she schemes even further and she begins to play the part of a pimp. You say, well, what do you mean by that? She basically pimps out her own daughter and she says, you go in there and you dance, you perform, you strip, come on. You get in there and you show what you need to show in order to win his favor. And the Bible points out that evidently she must have had some moves. She must have had some moves because it so enticed Herod that he makes this offer. He was so unbelievably overwhelmed by her dance and her performance. He said, you ask whatever you want from me, 
up to half of my kingdom and I'm going to give it to you. That's pretty impressive. She must have been something else. And she comes along and her response to that is, she says, no, 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 I don't want any of that. She, she says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And John knows at this moment, he receives the word that his time is running short, that he's about to die. And this is where this scripture text picks up that I read to you at this point. John comes to, or actually two of his disciples come to John, and John tells them, and I'm, I'm quoting now and, and paraphrasing, but yet he says, you go to Jesus and you ask him and, and you tell him, does he even really know that I'm about to die? Go and ask Jesus, is he the one who was prophesied or should we be looking for another? Is he the one of whom I have tried to prepare the way? Is he the one that I have been preaching and, and, and sacrificing for? Is he actually the one or should we be looking for another? Now that's a weird question. Because 16 months prior, this same John who is now questioning, is this the Messiah, is the same John who introduced him as the Messiah to the world. It's the same man. And my point in bringing this up to you is that his circumstances have changed. You see, when he was in the river and he's preaching repentance and the Messiah is there with him, and even though John went through many, many struggles as we all do, now circumstances have changed. Now he is in prison for his faith. Now he is being persecuted for his faith. And he begins to wonder, can I tell you, oh, how our circumstances change our perspective. Come on, somebody. One moment you can be walking in victory, living high on the hog, on top of the mountain, confident, ready to whip the devil yourself. And when the circumstances change, your perspective changes and you begin to question God. That's in essence what John the Baptist did. Go and ask him, is he the one? Well, John knew he was the one. Really what he was getting at, I believe, what he was getting at, the context of the scripture, does Jesus know I'm in here? Does Jesus really know that I'm in prison? And John's disciples, they found Jesus. Now get this. John's disciples, they found Jesus in a village performing miracles. They walk up on him and he had just been blessing and healing and preaching all day long. And I want, to, I want to just stop and tell you right now that you yourself, like John, can be in your proverbial prison. You can be bound up in your prison, but God is still performing miracles. God is still performing miracles. God has not forgotten about you. Your time is coming. You've got to keep hope alive in your life. That God may be blessing and setting people free and delivering them from things. And you're sitting in your prison wondering, does God know where I'm at? Is he even on the move? Can I tell you? He is blessing and he is healing and he is setting free. And he has not forgotten about you. He has not forgotten about you. And Jesus tells them in somewhat, I believe... In, in, he, he, answers his question, he answers her question without ever really answering them. He basically just kind of puts him on the spot. And I don't mean Jesus was being snarky. I don't mean to suggest that at all. But it was almost like Jesus was, well, what a dumb question. I mean, really, what a dumb question. He goes and he tells him, he says, well, just go back and tell him what you're seeing and what you're hearing. The blind can now see, the lame can walk, the deaf can hear. Even the dead were being raised. What do you mean if I'm the Messiah? You go back and you tell him what you see and what he already knows to be true. You see, Jesus never really answered their question. He sort of just ignored them. And Jesus let his ministry, get this now, Jesus let his own ministry and his own miracles confirm to them and John what they already need to be true. Because here's my point in saying all this. 
is that when you are in your prison and you are going through your struggle and you are being bound up like John about something in your life, you know in your heart of hearts that God is still on the throne, that he still hears prayers, that he still loves you. It ain't worth all this mess. Well, does God really? You know he loves you. That's what you have to hang tough and keep hope until he shows up in your situation. Come on, John. Yes. John's moment of greatest need, he needed to know that his life and that his ministry weren't in vain in view of his death. He was about to die. He wanted to know, do, has what I have done, does it matter? Is, is it valid? It's important that after all this, the Bible points out earlier in chapter 11, uh, in, in verse 7, it says, And these men went away. And once they had went away, get this, once they had already left, the Bible points out in that same verse that Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. And he goes on in, the, in verse 11, a few verses later, and that's when he makes that powerful statement. Among those born of women, there's never been one like John. What a powerful compliment. What a powerful thought. What a powerful compliment. John never actually heard Jesus said these words. But imagine, this is what I want you, this is what I really want to get across to you tonight, right here. This is the main point. But imagine what would have happened if John had been given those words of encouragement. Now, I believe John, when he left this earth, he went out in victory. Amen. I mean, he wasn't like no whip pup there in prison. But, but those disciples came back and they reported to him what Jesus had told them. Well, you go tell them what you're seeing and what you're hearing. They went back and they told John. I believe that that obviously appeased him for the moment. But the compliment he never got to hear. And if John had heard that compliment from Jesus, I believe it would have just, just set him on fire in the prison. Because everybody has to have hope in your prison. Everybody has to have hope when you are bound in your chains. Everybody has to have hope when you feel like all hell has assembled against you and the world is coming. Can you imagine what it is like that Jesus was bragging on John? Can I just stop and say, we may not be able to hear it with the audible ear down here, but it might just be that Jesus is up in heaven and he says to the Father, my goodness. Has there ever been one like a Randy West? My goodness, Father, has there ever been one like Chuck? Oh, my goodness, has there ever been one like Zach? And go down, I have to believe that when you are in your prison and you are in your struggle and you feel bound, you may not be able to hear it with the audible ear, but God in heaven is for you and bragging on you and excited about you, church. You might be in here tonight and you obviously aren't locked up in prison or facing beheading like John, but maybe you're bound up in the prison of your soul. Maybe you're facing difficult circumstances. Maybe fear, maybe addictions. Maybe you're locked up over past failures, past sins, past problems. But I just want to say to you tonight, you're doing okay. You're doing okay. Did y'all hear me? You're doing okay. You're doing all right. The Bible says that the devil is the accuser of the brothers. But I'm here to tell you that you might have issues going on in your life, but there is hope. You might not be where you want to be. You might not even be where you ought to be. But you're better than you used to be. By the grace of God, through faith in Jesus. Even Paul said this. He said, I have not obtained the prize, but I press toward the mark. There ain't nobody in here perfect. Come on. But he says, I press toward the mark by the grace of God, the mercy of God. You keep pushing and you keep hope alive and you keep going. This is not the time to give up on God. This is not the time to quit God. You have to keep your hope alive. Another thing I want to say is quit putting yourself down. There are so many people 
that beat themselves up. Now listen, there ain't nothing wrong with taking an honest inventory of your life. Being honest with yourself. Everybody should do that. But all this nonsense of treating like, you know, you're the only one that God can't save. You're the only one that God can't do any work. That's a bunch, that's a lie from hell. You have done bought into something that is keeping you corrupted and, and, and beat down and, you know, you, you bought into a lie. You've absolutely bought into a lie. And so what you got to do, you know, the Bible points out in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, it says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And I'm not trying to play psychologist here, but there's something to be said about that. You know, if you just view yourself as a bunch of, of, of can I say this? I'm not going to use any names. Hannah, I, I, I'm telling you. I just, I want to cry. She came in, I don't know, three or four weeks ago. And she said, Josh, she was about to bawl. She said, Josh, she said, I came in and she said she was taking care of a particular patient. I can't tell you names, nothing like that. She didn't even tell me names. I don't know who it was, but she said there was a patient of hers that had tattooed on their hand, on all their fingers, if you used to hold them together, your, your thumbs and your fingers, it said, born to lose. And when she told me that, something in my spirit, in my heart, just began to weep. Because it, it became this self-fulfilling prophecy type thing. It was obvious how they viewed themselves. Are you all hearing me now? Born to lose. They had tattooed that lie onto themselves. And they literally bought into it and began to live it out. And in, in the circumstance, I won't, I won't go into all that. But I, you guys, you say, well, Josh, what do I do about this? It's time to start thinking about yourself, about how God thinks about you. If you don't ever get in the Word of God, you won't know how He thinks about you. Let me just give you a little bit of insight. Can I do that? Now, I'm going to quote a bunch of scriptures here, and I'm going to be fast about it, so don't, don't tune me out. Is that all right? Here's what the Word of God says about you. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, He says, I breathed. Into your nostrils the breath of life. Genesis 1 verse 27, he says, I created you in my image. Psalms 139 verse 16 says, My eyes saw your unformed substance. Psalm 139 verse 13, he says, I knit you together in your mother's womb. Matthew chapter 10 verse 30 points out, he says, I know the number of hairs on your head, and before a word on your tongue is spoken, I know it. Psalm 139, verse 14, he says, You are fearfully and wonderfully made. He goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17, he says, In my eyes you are a brand new creation. The old has passed away, and now you are become new. He goes on to point out in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, that sin is no longer your master, for you died to sin and now are alive in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for you, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, that all of your sins have been forgiven, according to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, that all your unrighteousness has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, according to 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 and 9, that you are now righteous in my sight with the very righteousness of my perfect Son, Romans chapter 4 and verse 5, that you have been saved by grace, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, you have been justified by faith, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, that nothing will be able to separate you from my love in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8 and verse 39, that no one is able to snatch you out of my hand, John chapter 10 and verse 29, that I will never leave you, that I will never forsake you, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. I can go on and on and on about how God sees you and if you will ever catch a glimpse about how God sees you when all hell assembles against you, you will then know according to the word that he is for you and not against you. Be encouraged. But John, poor John, he didn't get to hear any of that. Poor John didn't. But you have. You have. 
And with that, you have to be encouraged. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 28. I'm, I'm sorry. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 gives 28 times or seasons in your life. You've heard them before. Time to be born, a time to die, a time to sow, a time to reap, and on and on and on. You can go and you can read all them for yourself. But one thing that I heard a preacher say, and I loved it, he said, there's never one time where it says quit is ever mentioned. Quit's never mentioned in any of those. There's never a time to quit. And you have to keep pushing. And listen, I don't know what you're going through. John was locked up in his legitimate physical prison, but maybe you're locked up in a prison with fear. Maybe depression. Maybe all hell is coming against you. Maybe some bad diagnosis. But there is hope in Christ. You have to keep your hope up. And I believe if John had been able to hear some of this, that he would have started preaching right then and there in the middle of, of the prison, that he would have just preached all the way up the 13 steps to the, to, to the chopping block, that he wouldn't have shut his mouth until the blade came down. I believe he would have preached and preached and preached and preached. Why? Because of the hope that was in him. You have to have hope. Even a little bit of hope changes things. Some of you sit around and say, well, Josh, but I have this sin issue. Listen, I'm not making light of sin at all. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not excusing away sin. I'm not fluttering it away. I'm not sitting here saying, listen, if, if you've got a sin issue, get it under the blood and move on. Get it under the blood and move on. But there is hope in Christ. If you're breathing, if you're upright, he hasn't returned yet, there's still hope. Maybe you just got a bad report from the doctor. Maybe you're broke spiritually. Maybe you're actually broke financially. Maybe there's an addiction and you tried to kick it time and time again. I'm not here to preach condemnation against you. I'm here to tell you that there is hope. You're here tonight, aren't you? And for some of you, right now, the Holy Spirit is dealing with your hearts. The Holy Spirit has come in and He's dealing with your hearts as I preach. The Holy Spirit, He's stirring you up. That's hope. When the Holy Spirit is moving, that's hopeful. But Josh, it makes me feel uncomfortable. That's hope. Man, I don't, you know, it's, it's worrisome, you know. I, God's kind of, that's, that's hope. He's trying to help you with His Holy Spirit. You have to have hope. If you didn't have hope, you wouldn't be here tonight, would you? Most of you would be at home sitting on the couch in your pajamas watching a ball game, eating a bunch of nachos. But you're here. You're here because you came into the church because you know that God's Word tells you to go to the church. You know to go to the church for help. You know to go to the Word for help. You know to stay in prayer for help. And God, in his, there's something about being God in His awesome presence that brings about help and hope in the middle of your circumstances. And some of you say, well, Josh, but I have failed and I have fallen. Well, that's all right. Fail forward. Fail forward. If you're going to fail, if you're going to fail, don't fail backward. Fail forward. I watched, I, I couldn't tell you where it is. You'd have to look it up online yourself. But I watched a, a video one time, of, of, and it was, it was an amazing event to me that these guys were racing, and it was, it was some big track meet, and and right at the end of the line, these two guys got out in front of the rest of the pack. And right at the very end, one of them tripped. But he tripped and it propelled him forward. And because of his fall, he ended up winning the race. Now, I'm not saying that if you want to win the race of your life, you need to fail. But what I am saying is, is that if you fall, the Bible says that the righteous man falls seven times. Get back up. Get up. There's hope in Christ. And when you rise again, don't just sit there in self-condemnation. Run to God. Run to God. Listen, I know in, in our fleshly beings, we condemn ourselves, and, and the enemy comes in and tells us that, oh, you know, here you are. Uh, you know, you have failed, and, and God won't love you. Here, here's the thing about God. If you have an honest, Bible points this out, if you have an honest and a contrite heart before God, an open, sincere, contrite heart, you're sorry for what you did, the Bible says that God in no wise will he turn them away. 
If you've fallen and you're truly repentant, then the devil will tell you, oh, you better stay away from God. No, that's exactly what you need to do. You need to take off running dead on to him and jump up in his lap, so to speak, and repent and tell him you're sorry and let him dust you off and love on you a little while and send you on your way. Get up. There is hope in Christ. Turn to your neighbor and smile. Show a little bit of hope. Some of you, that's hard to do. I'll be for real. Josh, I don't have much to smile about. Yeah, you do. You've got all those promises in Scripture. I just rattle off a bunch of them to you, and there's a whole bunch more than that. I heard this that said, and uh, one guy I heard, and I guess this is true, maybe some of you medical gurus can correct me if I'm wrong, but said it takes 72 muscles to smile. 72 muscles to smile. And it takes 108 muscles to frown. We need to learn how to exhibit a little bit of hope because it's a whole lot easier than sitting around frowning and discouraging people. Just flash a smile to somebody. It's a flash a smile to somebody you're sitting next to right now. Brighten their day right now. Show off your pearly whites. I had a coach in school that never smiled. Never smiled. He wasn't necessarily an angry guy, but he absolutely would never smile and... and and I got in trouble one time. He, he, <laughs> he got pretty mad at me because I went up to him. I couldn't help it. After years of, uh, of, of having him in school, I finally just went up to him one day. And I said, you know what? Because all he would do is he would just, he would just you know, scowl. Just, you know, just have this bitter look. And just. Finally, I went up to him one day. I said, you know what? I said, if you would exercise the rest of the muscles of your body, as much as you do your mouth muscles, I said, you'd be a bodybuilder. <clears throat> I said, you frowned so much. He didn't take that very well. He knew what I was getting at. But the point I'm trying to make to you guys is that you matter. You matter to God. John the Baptist mattered to God. And I know that it, I, I know when you read that scripture and you think, well, man, that was just kind of a flippant thing that, you know, Jesus, well, what do you mean, you know, am I the Messiah? What do you mean, am I the Messiah? Just tell him what I've seen and heard. And th then he goes on and he makes that profound statement There's never been one like him. There's never been one like him. He tells the crowd, the Bible points out that he began to talk to the crowds about John. Jesus didn't just utter that little thing under his breath. He was blasting it to all the crowds. Hey, guys, there's never been one like him. I have to believe. You know, you might be sitting there saying, well, do I matter? Do I matter to God? Yes, you matter. Yes, you matter. But Josh, all I do is just, you know, I just get up and work nine to five, and I don't have any big, great, grand ministry, and... You know, I'm not a John. Let me tell you something. God's got a plan and a purpose for your life. You need to be encouraged. You matter. Very quickly, I want to say this. This ain't in my notes, but it just... If you've ever heard the story of Dr. James Dobson and focus on the family, he's often told the story about growing up in a Christian home and his father was a pastor. And he... Uh, he when James Dobson was young, his, his dad had this very, uh, you know, the church was growing just leaps and bounds. And for that day and time in which he was a young man and his dad was pastoring, the church was a huge church, a mega church for that day and time. And he points out, he's, he said that he points out that one day his dad began to realize that even though uh, the church was growing, the family, their family was kind of falling apart. And he says that his dad began to realize in his own life. Now, this is James Dobson speaking. Now, he says he begins to realize, his dad began to realize that in James's life, in his own life, that things weren't going the way they should go. That James was just kind of going by the wayside and kind of pulling a rebellious and pulling out from church and all this kind of stuff. And so, his dad, this is profound to me. His dad finally just came in and, and told the church and resigned the church for the sole purpose of ministering to his family. They moved up to Colorado and his dad took a job and he literally began to make his ministry about his family. Now let me stop and say, I'm not saying that that's the thing to do in every situation. But here's what I am saying this, about this. That one man's actions 
in pouring into his family ultimately led to the ministry now known as Focus on the Family. Anybody ever heard of Focus on the Family? It so impacted James's life. James said that he, Dr. Dobson said he realized that what his dad did, the sacrifice, and that ministered to him, and it spoke to him, and his dad began to pour time into him and, and mentor him in the things of God, and, and, and it so touched him that now Dr. Dobson and the, the worldwide ministry that he, all because of the influence of one man, one man. You say, well, Josh, I'm just one, but you matter. Just one matters. All it takes is one. Just one matters. And let me just be honest, your life may not have the impact or the, the influence, so to speak, of, of, a, of a mega church pastor or whatever, but can I tell you, you matter to the kingdom. You matter to somebody. You matter to Jesus. You matter to your family. You matter to your spouse if you're married. You matter, you matter to your kids if you got kids. You matter to somebody, and just one can make a worldwide impact. You matter. Be encouraged. The devil comes along and treats you like you don't. Can I tell you to all the parents who get discouraged going through the paces of life trying to raise their kids the right way? You matter. If we could just get some parents that would just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise these kids in church. They can, well, I don't want to go to church tonight. You know, I, I, I'm bored. I got Well, I don't, I'm sorry. You're going. I've said this to my kids. You guys have heard me say this a hundred times. I'm not raising kids. I'm raising adults. I don't know about you. I'm raising adults. And when they get out there in the adult world, I want them to have so much of Jesus in their life that they can handle whatever kind of hell comes against them because it's coming. It's coming. You can't protect them from everything. And quite frankly, let me say this. They, they need to face a little bit of hell on their own. They need to face a little bit of it because they need to understand that there's going to be some things that mom and dad can't do for them, but Jesus sure can. He may not deliver them from all of it, but he'll sure walk right through the middle of it with them. I'll move on to every student who deals with insecurities and bullying. And trying to fit in. And just trying to have a place in life. You matter. I don't care what them heathen jokers may tell you up there at school. You matter to God. You matter. <clears throat> to everybody else that feels like you're less than, that you'll never measure up, or that you'll never be like so and so, you don't believe that lie from hell because you matter. I believe that, that literally from a young age, the devil just, he, 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 pin, he, he, you know, the devil's smart. For some of you, that's just a revelation right there, but he's smart. It isn't haphazard attacks that he throws. He's smart. He scopes you out. He scopes out your family, your family's past, your tendencies, the things that you're drawn to, and he begins to put stumbling blocks in your way. And, and, and he, it's like I preached last week, you know, that he'll piggyback his attack. He'll take the natural things of life and, and, that are going on, and he'll just piggyback his junk onto whatever else is going on in your life, and it doubles the effect of the attack. And just on and on and on he goes. But I want to tell you, the reason he does that is because if you ever catch a glimpse, if you ever catch a glimpse that you matter to the things of God, that you matter to God, that you matter in ministry, that you matter to the kingdom of God, that your influence matters, that you matter, that just one matters. Just one. Just one. I recently read a story... I love, in fact, I said this last week, I do, I love uh, biographies and stories of great men and women of the faith. And I recently came across a story that just inspired me. It's a story about, and hang with me, if you're not, if you don't like history or, or whatever, just 
just grit your teeth for a moment. And bear with me because this just blessed my heart. This touched my heart, this story. It's a story of a Christian French knight in the middle of the 1500s. His name was Jean Vallette. And right out of the gate, I want to tell you that if you study a little bit of his life, he was absolutely no angel. I don't mean to put him up on some kind of a pedestal. I don't mean to do that at all. He definitely had his faults and failures. But this French knight, he was 70 years old. And he was chosen to be the leader of a group of knights and a group of militia on the island of Malta out in the middle of the Mediterranean. In the middle 1500s, if you, if you know anything about history, world history, there was a great struggle that was going on in the Mediterranean with Muslim forces that were coming in. In fact, they had raided, get this, some of you, you know, we, we think of Europe being a Christian, Christian continent primarily, but Muslims would raid all along the Mediterranean coast of France, all along France. They would go all the way up even into England, up into Scotland and Ireland. They even went so far north as Iceland. And they would raid, these Muslims would, they would raid and, and they would rape and pillage and all this kind of stuff. And they would haul off uh, uh, slaves. They, they would, you know, bring captives, Christian captives back. They estimate over about a hundred years span of time that over a million Christians were taken slave as slaves, and then shipped back down into the Middle East and down into North Africa, sold off as slaves. So I'm just trying to lay a little bit of a background. That's what this war, that's what this struggle was going on. It, it was literally a Christian alliance of nations that had gotten together, and they were literally fighting the Islamic forces from the Ottoman Empire. And here we have, centered in the middle of this great war, this great battle of Malta, we have this night... Jean Vallette. He was a part of what they call the Order of St. John. And the Order of St. John was a group of knights and militia that was tasked with the defense of Malta in the year 1565. Malta being in the Mediterranean, in the middle of it, was constantly harassed by Muslim forces that were coming in. And, and, and it was slaughter. I'm not talking about little skirmishes. I'm talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of deaths. And what, why this was so significant was because the Muslims had decided that if we can conquer Malta, if we can take out the Christian forces there and the little navy that they had there, that they would be unopposed in a final attack on mainland Christian Europe. After Malta, there was no established army that was together yet to fight them. If they could get past Malta, then they would march into Europe unopposed. Can you imagine? Let me just stop and say, can you imagine that now? How that would have changed world history? Y'all see where I'm going with this? This was huge. This was a significant situation for Christianity. And they came in, these Muslim forces, with approximately 40 1,000 soldiers up against 6,500, 6,500 knights and Christian militia. And they began to bombard all of these forts. They, they had guns at this time and cannons. They began to bombard all of these forts and the little Christian navy. And, and it was, I'm not going to waste a bunch of time, but just suffice to say that these 6,500 Christians, they were putting the whooping on them. That's just Boot Hill saying right there. They were whooping them. They didn't whip them. They were whooping them. And this struggle went on for three months. And they would slowly, the Muslims would push the Christians back. And, and finally, toward the end of three months, get this, the Christians had lost somewhere around three or 4,000 of their soldiers, but they had killed over 20,000 Muslims. They were taking a bunch of them with them. And it's no exaggeration to say that if the Muslims took Malta, that they would have marched into Europe and ultimately had a stronghold there, a foothold there, that would have changed mainland Christian Europe as we may have made the whole continent Muslim, following the Islamic faith. 
This was huge. At one point, this is where I'm going with this. In this extended battle, this three-month siege, things were looking bleak. The Muslims had lost thousands of men, but they were finally on the verge. They had pushed the Christians back to the final fort. And they had focused their attention on a wall of this last fort that they were up against. And they were drilling their cannon fire into the same place time and time again, trying to tear down this wall so so that they could create a breach, so that they could create an opening and run the soldiers through. Well, finally, they got the job done. They blew a hole in the wall. Finally got through. They blew a hole in the wall. And literally thousands of Muslim soldiers assembled that once the dust had settled from from the cannon fire and they took off at a mad run toward that opening in the wall, up-stepped a 70-year-old knight. Now, this is something straight out of Hollywood right here. Up-stepped a 70-year-old knight. How many of you, 70-year-old, raise your hand, Dad. I know you're 70. How many 70-year-olds in here? Over 70. Let Let me just paint a picture for you. Here we go. In the middle of that opening, up-stepped this 70-year-old knight with a pike. Y'all know what a pike is. He had a pike in his hand. And he began to rally the Christian soldiers and knights behind him. And all of a sudden, the Muslims, according to to the writings of the time, the Muslims were just kind of like, what? What?" They expected the Christians to maybe fight a little bit, You know, they would run into the fort. They would fight, ultimately give up, and then they would win the day. But all of a sudden, here come this 70-year-old knight with a pike in hand, and he rallied the remaining troops that he had behind him, and all of a sudden, they pulled off the unexpected. They took off at a dead charge at those Muslims. They left the, the, the surroundings of their fort And literally, the the writings at that time point out that it was so shocking that the Muslims expected that they must have had thousands and thousands of soldiers in reserve tucked away somewhere, that they dropped their weapons, they took off running back to the shore. Here come this 70-year-old knight going as hard as he could with the remaining soldiers, ran them off the beach, and won the battle. You say, well, what does that have to do about anything? That one man's actions mattered. That one man's actions won the day, and it is not an exaggeration to say potentially saved Christian Europe. That's how significant it is. Now, nobody's ever heard, anybody ever heard of him before? I didn't think so. And maybe nobody around the world will hear about you, but you matter. What you do matters, church. Your life matters. Standing in the gap. I just want to say this, older folks, you matter. Older generation, you matter. We need some more Christian nights. Some Jean Valets to stand up and say, you know what, this ain't going to happen. We're going to fight this thing out in the prayer room. We're going to fight this thing out on our knees. We're going to fight this thing out in in prayer and in the Word of God. You matter. I I want to jump ahead of my notes. I just, I I overprepared. I'm going to ask real quick if if some of the musicians would come, but before they do, I'm going to ask Pastor John if he would come up here for just a moment. Other musicians, if you want to go ahead and take your place, if you would. I'm also going to ask Pastor Mike if you come up here. Or uh, not, I'm, I'm sorry, Mike, you can come up here too. Mike, Mike, come on up here if you're able to. Pastor Zach, come on up. There's a, I'm going to use these guys in a little illustration. There is a, uh, the often quoted scripture that we use, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31. You say, well, Josh, I, I need some encouragement. I'm going through some tough things. I need some encouragement. Well, here you go. Here's what the Word of God says about that. It says, those that wait upon the Lord will find new strength. How many of you know the Scripture? They will fly high on wings like eagles. 
They will run and they will not grow weary. They will walk and they will not be faint. Now listen, I have, I've heard this, this message preached on before. I, I want to focus just briefly on that word wait. W-A-I-T, that's the English transliteration of it. W-A-I-T, the word wait. Now I've heard that preached on that says that, that, that those that wait upon the Lord, like a server, like a waiter or a waitress. And, and, and let me stop and say, that's, they're, they're preaching the idea of servitude unto the Lord. How many of you know we're to be servants unto the Lord? But that's not what that word is at all talking about. Not at all. In fact, when you study the, the Hebrew word for it, there's two. There's two meanings. And you can even look it up in Strong's Concordance. Two meanings. The first one talks about wait, waiting from eagerly looking for God to show up. Where is he? I know he's coming. Where is he? So in other words, when you're in the middle of your life circumstances and you're going through some tough times, you are to eagerly look for God. Amen? Does that make sense? But there's also a second meaning. And it, and it pertains to this. It literally means, this word wait, it means to collect or to bind together. Well, that's kind of a weird way. Wait, wait what do you mean bind together? This is what the Lord showed me. When some of you are going through your toughest of circumstances, if you're ever going to make this thing through, Zach, you know what to do. We talked about this. What you've got to do is you have to bind yourself to the Word of God. Are you hearing me now? When tough circumstances come in and you are sitting there and you are overwhelmed and you are discouraged, if you have not figured out a way to bind yourself to the Word of God when the time of testing comes, you'll get discouraged and you'll fall away. If you are bound to something, it means that it will not easily be ripped away from you. It doesn't leave you. It's, it's not going to easily be removed. Nobody's going to come along and strip that word from you because it is bound to you. Am I making sense, church? In other words, you have to bind yourself to the things of God if you want strength. I mean, you have to sit there and you got to tie knots and you got to make sure that, is that tied? I mean, I don't want to cut off circulate, but you know what I'm talking I mean, you got to have that thing where it is loose, it, it, you know, it's there. So that whenever struggle comes and temptation comes and discouraging things come, you can say, well, I've got this in my head. I've got it in my heart. The devil is not going to rip it away from me. I'm going to hang on to it. I'm going to pray this thing through, and I'm going to stay encouraged in spite of my circumstance. Yes, look eagerly for God. Absolutely. Absolutely. But be bound to the things of God. And it goes deeper than that. you got to be bound to prayer. Bound to it. I mean, it's there. It doesn't escape you. And not just that. You have to be bound to others. Tie that around a time or two. Come here, Mike. Tie that around. You say, well, Josh, this is a... No, 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 no. The point of it is, is that when you are discouraged, you have to be bound to people that when you are down, they can lift you up. That when you are beat down and discouraged, you are bound and they pick up, pick up on that stuff in your life. They come along and because you have bound yourself to them, you have support and you're not going to go anywhere. It, it amazes me how many people will hop around from church to church to church to go from this Holy Spirit high to the next Holy Spirit high. And listen, I know God's doing the work all over, but you need to get bound somewhere, plant yourself. Come on. That's, give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Yeah, you missed it right there. There you go. Get bound, get settled in something where when times get rough, you have support. They're not going to get away from you. They're not going to escape you. You are bound to this thing. You guys can, un, good luck unbinding that. Thank you guys. I hope I'm making sense tonight. It's like you're twisting a rope around, binding together in hope. You never see anybody, if, if you do see them, they're insane. 
Hannah wants to go watch a movie. What's that, what's that movie called? Free Solo? We just got back a few months ago from El Capitan over in, in Yosemite National Park. Uh, about a week or eight, seven or eight days before we, we got there, there were two uh, climbers. that It's, it's a 3,000-foot sheer face. Two climbers fell to their deaths about eight, seven or eight days before we got there. I mean, we literally, we went, in our hike, we literally stood, I mean, right, right there, right there where they fell. We were right there. And you said, well, what are you talking about? The Free Solo, this movie that's coming out, it's what, what, why it intrigues people, why it's so crazy and intriguing, is that it's these people that will climb this sheer cliff without any kind of ropes. They said it takes on average, it takes the average person, is it three or six days? Five days? Takes the average person five days, get this, to go 3,000 feet. Five days. And they climb in pairs. Most people will climb in pairs, sometimes three people. You, you take all your supplies with you, and I mean all your supplies. Let that sink in for just a second. You take all your supplies. I won't ask you some of the conversation I got into with one of the guys. You know, I'm like, dude, what are you? <laughs> You're 1,500 feet high. I mean, what are you? I mean, we well, you get into all that. But anyway... And, but, but they have these ropes, and they're, they're, they're bound. Are you getting where I'm going with this? It's crazy that they're doing it in the first place, but they're, but they're bound so that if they fall, obviously you've got something there to, to catch you. Can I tell you that's what the church is to be? That when you start to fall and fail and, and fumble and all this kind of stuff, that the church comes along and pats you on the back. If you need to be corrected, they'll correct you. Come on. Ooh. I know that's a tough one when you've got 160 other churches in Butler County to pick from, but it's okay. You know, if somebody needs to come along and correct you, is that all right? Whew. They've done it in my life. Come on. And, but you need that, that binding so that when you start to fall, you are caught. But what's crazy about this, move, this, this guy is that he's doing it freehand. There was a guy that set a record. Like I said, the average group, it takes five days. One guy climbed it freehand a little over two hours. Two hours. That's insane. And I don't mean, I mean, I mean that boy, he needs to have an evaluation done. Y'all know what I'm talking about. That's insane. But he, you, you know, the, the things that he's doing, he's taking his, you know, his, his own life in his own hands. You need to be bound together. If you guys would go ahead and start playing, I, I want you to get this. Do not allow the devil to say to you that God is not interested in your life or in your problems, that you do not matter. You say, well, Josh, that's just a, I mean, is that all you got for me tonight? That's just pretty basic preaching. Here's one for you. The scriptures show that God has numbered the stars and you know where I'm going with this. He has numbered the stars, and he has called each of the stars by name. Okay, you say, well, all right, I've heard that before. Well, let me, let me go a little bit deeper with you. On December 1st, 2010, there was a report that came out on Fox News on their website, the Fox News website, foxnews.com. There was a report that came out. I remember looking at this. I had to look it up today. It is estimated by all these astronomers and astrophysicists and all the other big, big wig PhDs that this is what they estimate. They estimate that in the universe <laughs> there are 300 sextillion stars in the universe. You can look it up, foxnews.com. You can just do a Google search, type it in, 300 sext. If you know how to spell that, it's S E X. T-I-L-L-I-O-N. Look it up. 300 sextillion stars in the universe. You say, I have no idea what that means. I don't either. I actually had to write it down for it to even comprehend in my mind. It's a three with 23 zeros after it to paint the picture. And the Bible says that God numbered them and he's got a name for each and every one of them. He's got a name for every one of them. And the 
this same God that, that does that is so intimate and so loves you and wants you to know that he is for you that he says, you know what, I'm going to send my only son for you. That's love. Don't tell me he doesn't care for you. That's, 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 that's a lie from hell. But Josh, why am I going through this circumstance? Why am I going through this hardship? I don't know. I'm not sure that John the Baptist really wanted to have his head cut off. But maybe, maybe, just maybe, maybe Jesus is in heaven and he's saying, man, there has never been one like Bill Marvin. There has never been one like Louise Marvin. There's never been one like Mike Tidwell. Just like Jesus bragged on John, maybe, just maybe, he's bragging on you. Church, the Lord loves you. We're not exempt from trouble. Our Savior was not exempt from it. Who are we to think? Come on. If you'd stand tonight.